Good morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Job chapter 29, so please turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words on the screens around the room, but it would be helpful to have your Bible open as we're going to be moving through chapters 29 through 31 this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase. I am the executive pastor here at Desert Springs, and we're really glad that you are joining us in this study through Job and on a baptism Sunday. So we're going to be reading... Uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 20. So follow along with me now. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Well, with chapter 31, we come to the close of a major section in this book of Job. So as we come to this turning point in the book, I thought it would be helpful to take a moment and just remember how far we have come through this book. We began the book with a kind of prologue. That's how the book starts, a narrative that begins, chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, that's how the book starts. We then watch in horror as this righteous man loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his property, he loses his children, even his own physical health. It's all taken from him. By the end of chapter 2, just two short chapters of prologue, Job's life is completely ruined. Then we come to chapter 3, and you'll remember that this is Job's cry of despair. So the book shifts from narrative, telling a story, to poetry. And it starts with lamenting. Job cries out. But in chapter 3, there are a lot of questions, a repetition of questions that all begin with the word Why? Why is this happening to me? Why isn't God helping me? Why was I even born? 
These are the questions that Job is asking in his anguish. Have you ever asked those questions? Are you asking those questions right now? The rest of the book so far, chapters 4 through uh, 28, these are all man's attempts at trying to answer that question. Why? We saw beginning in chapter 4, Job's friends come, and we have three rounds of poetic debates as they are arguing about how to answer that question. Why? And Job's friends' answer is, well... Job, we know that only bad things happen to bad people. So if all of this bad stuff is happening to you, well, that must mean you've done something bad. And you need to repent. Get right with God. And, and if you do that, then everything will just turn out okay again. The only problem with that is we know that it isn't true. Because we had the prologue. We had what happened at the beginning. We know that Job really was a blameless and righteous man. Not a perfect man, but certainly not a man who has done anything that he needs to repent of. Certainly not deserving of the suffering that he is undergoing. No, we, we learn that God has other purposes for Job in his suffering. But they're mysterious. And they're deep. And they're wise, but they're unknowable. But they're good. And that's what we considered last week, if you were with us, especially in chapter 28, that this is a big theme of the book of Job, that, that there are many things about God and about God's plan that, that we will just never understand. There is a mystery here. And in those moments in life when we cry out with that question, why? Or even more, when we angrily demand that God explain himself to us? Well, the answer we get from God, at least as far as the book of Job is concerned, is you wouldn't be able to understand if I tried. God answers that question, why, the way that a good father speaks to his little children. This is too big for you. This is too complex. This is too eternal. You're not going to be able to understand. You couldn't handle it. But I'm not asking you to trust in your own understanding. I'm asking you to trust in me. I'm good. But that's a big ask, isn't it? Can God be trusted? Is God really good? As we come to the close of this section, that's really the question that Job once answered. His three friends think the problem is that Job has done something wrong, and that's why all of this bad stuff is happening to him. But Job knows that that's not true. And so the only conclusion he's left to draw is that maybe the problem is with God. Maybe God is not acting wisely. Maybe God is not ruling with justice, maybe God isn't good. And so as we turn to chapters 29 through 31, this is uh, Job's closing arguments, as it were, and all of the debate that's been happening. This is the last that we hear from Job, at least for a while. If you scan your eyes down to the end of chapter 31, you see it says, the words of Job are ended. So in these chapters, we see Job making his best case 
to defend this conclusion that the problem is not with him, and so maybe it is with God. So we're going to look at this in three parts for three chapters. If you're taking notes in your outline, this is our first point, chapter 29, past honors. Past honors. So we saw chapter 29, it begins verse 2. Job says, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. So he's remembering back fondly to the life that he had before all of this suffering has come upon him. And he wants those good old days back. But what, what is sweet and surprising is right at the very beginning, what, what it seems like Job misses the most is not his stuff. It's not his wealth. It's not even his children. But it's God. It's, it's what all of those blessings signified, that he was in a right relationship with God. He says in verse 2, it was the days when God watched over me. Verse 4, he says, the friendship of God was on my tents, and the Almighty was yet with me. So chapters 29 and 30, they kind of work together as one big lament. And we see right at the very beginning the thing that Job is lamenting the most. It's not his stuff, but it's that he feels like he has lost God. That's his deepest sorrow. That's his greatest sadness. And I had to wonder, would I respond that way? If I lost what Job had lost, if I had lost my children? Would you respond that way? I think this response alone vindicates God before Satan. Do you remember how this whole thing started back in the beginning when Satan sets up this test to prove that, that, God, that, or that Job really doesn't worship God for nothing. He worships God because of all the stuff that he gets from God. That's the test. That's, that's what's been happening so far. And here it is. Job has lost everything. And he begins by lamenting, I have lost God. So he doesn't worship God for the stuff. He, he misses God most of all. And because of that, he laments. And then beginning in verse 7, and this is really most of the rest of the chapter, then Job, after he has lamented the loss of that right relationship with God, well, then he talks about how that right relationship worked itself out and right relationships with others. So he describes how he went around in his community and he was honored by the other people that he lived with. Verse 7 says, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square. So what he's talking about is the place in an ancient city where, where the judges would sit, where the elders of the society would be to, to arbitrate and discuss things with the people that they, that they essentially ruled over. So Job is saying he was a kind of overseeing elder in his community, and he had a wonderful reputation because he was a man of good character. And he was wise, and he was generous. So he says, whenever I showed up to take my seat, the young guys all got up out of my way to respect me. And even the aged, they would listen to me. Verses 9 and 10, he says, even the princes and nobles held their tongues so that they could hear what Job had to say. So we get a picture of a man who has power and influence and authority. God has brought Job into a very privileged position in his society. 
And Job doesn't use that position to take advantage of others. He uses it to bless his neighbors. Verse 12, it says he cared for the poor and orphans. Verse 13, he helped the widow and he rescued those who were about to die. Verses 15 and 16, he says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, the physically handicapped. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I didn't even know. He was a just man and he was working justice into his society, caring for those who had needs. You men and women in this room that God has placed in a privileged position, you need to recognize that that's from God. If you have wealth, if you have authority, if you have influence over other people, that's a gift. And it's one that is to be stewarded for the good of other people, not for your own sake. That's what Job did. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And all of this is really, it has in mind what we saw at the end of chapter 28, verse 28. God says to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That is what God has told to man about how to live life rightly in this universe that God has created. And the main argument that Job is making in chapters 29 through 31 is that he has been wise. He has done that. He has feared the Lord. He has turned away from evil. And for a time in Job's life, he saw the predictable outcome of that wisdom. He lived wisely, and it led to his success, and it led to his blessing. He had that. And because he didn't have any plans to stop being wise, to stop being righteous, he had every reason to expect that that was going to continue until the day that he died. He says this in verse 18, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. And I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. Those of you who are familiar with Psalm 1, you'll hear the similar language there, won't you? Job is the proverbial blessed man. It's worked out just the way wisdom says it would. And so his righteousness was his nest egg. Do you see that? I'm going to bank on this and ride this wise and righteous life all the way to a peaceful death, full of days and surrounded by blessings. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 30. But now. So this is our second point, chapter 30. Present horrors. So we saw past honors, present horrors. Verse 1, but now... They laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. So no longer is he honored by his community, but he is mocked and mocked by young men, the children of men who are foolish and unrighteous. Verse 8, it calls these men a senseless, nameless brood. The Hebrew for that, it literally says the sons of fools. So in a moment, everything for Job has flipped completely upside down. 
these people who are now mocking him are the very people that that retribution principle, you remember this? this? This idea that good things only ever happen to good people and bad things only ever happen to bad people. Well, these are the bad people. These are the people who walk in wickedness and foolishness. And, and so it's right that ruin has come upon them, but now they stand in a position over Job to laugh at him because things are so bad for Job. Verse 15, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Verses 16 and 17, he says, Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. He's describing the physical ailment that he has and how bad it hurts him all the time. I know some of you can relate to that. So his physical condition, his financial situation, his relational and societal position, it has gone from honored to horrific. And in verse 11 and verse 19, Job says that all of these horrors have come from God. Look at verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. God did this. And now we know, because we read the beginning, that it's not God who is Job's adversary, but it's Satan. It was back in that prologue. It was Satan who carried out these evil acts that destroyed Job's property, that, that killed his children, that even afflicted his body with this sickness. So this is Satan that is against Job, not God. But Satan only did what God allowed him to, right? It would really do no good to argue, no, 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 Job, you, you misunderstand. This, this wasn't God at all. He has nothing to do with this. This is only Satan. It's, it's Satan that's done this bad stuff. Because that would imply then that God is somehow not powerful enough to intervene to stop Satan from doing these evil things. And, and that's a terrifying thought, a God that's, that's too small and too weak to, to prevent evil from happening. That's not the view of God that Job has. This has been so striking to me that as Job is wrestling through his own suffering and this question of the problem of evil, he never for a moment doubts that God exists. And he never doubts that God is all-powerful. He only doubts whether or not God is good. Even in all of this bad stuff, he, really, he recognizes the truth that ultimately God is in control. So he's not wondering whether or not God is the ruler. He's just beginning to doubt whether or not God is a good ruler. Is God ruling with wisdom? Is God ruling in fairness? Is God just? This conclusion, it becomes more and more clear as you work through the three chapters that we're looking at, but, but the argument actually starts back in chapter 29. It's a little subtle, but I think we should try to track along with what Job is saying here. Because in chapter 29, Job is painting a picture of himself as someone with authority. He's someone with power over other people. He sat in the city gate and people listened to him. He had resources that he could use to bless people that were in need. Look at chapter 29, verse 25. Job says, I chose their way, and I sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts 
mourners. So Job was like a king. He was in charge. And how did Job rule? With justice. He made right decisions. He helped those people that needed it. He defended the powerless. And he comforted those who were sad. And how's God doing? That's the question that Job asks. Look at chapter 30, verse 20. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Verse 25, yet did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Do you see what Job is arguing here? God, when I was a ruler, when I sat as chief over men, I used my power the right way. The just way. I cared for those who were in need. I cared for those who were hurting. But you, you have all the power in the universe. And you're not helping me at all. God, what gives? That's Job's question. And not only is it that God is not helping Job, so it seems to Job, but it's worse than that. Because what it really seems like is God is punishing Job unjustly. And that's the greatest injustice. And that brings us to our third point. Future hope. So as I said, this is the closing arguments. That's a, that's a legal term. Those of you that like law shows or courtroom dramas. You know that this is the climax of the, the whole story. This is the closing argument that Job is making. And there's already been a lot of courtroom language in Job, hasn't there? This is important to just kind of file that away. You know, five years from now, when you're trying to remember what was Job about, something that you can kind of hold on to, one big motif for the book of Job is that there is a lot of legal language. This is a motif, this, this courtroom uh, language. Remember, Job has said he wants to present his case to God. He's asked for a mediator, an arbitrator between him and God to settle the case. Even the name Satan, that has a legal connotation to it. It's, it means the accuser, or it's like the prosecuting attorney. It's the one that brings charges against God's elect. I thought this was fascinating. One, one scholar has argued that the Hebrew legal context, the way that they would carry out their courtroom proceedings, it was that they would kind of have everybody just go around making arguments until somebody ran out of things to say. And then they would just stop talking. And then it was time to draw a verdict. Isn't that kind of what we saw going through the book of Job? We saw that last week, that they were going around and around in circles, and then his friends ran out of stuff to say. And now here we are, time for the closing Argument. So this, this legal idea runs through Job. And I've titled this point, Future Hope. But if you were to read chapter 31, you would realize right away that the, that the tone is far from hopeful. Job is, in his ignorance, accusing God. 
and it's indirect, but he is accusing God of not ruling the universe with justice and righteousness and wisdom. At least not the way that Job ruled over his little kingdom. But at the very end of the chapter, there is again this appeal that Job makes directly to God. He's going to ask God to, to give him the, the indictment, the, the record of wrongs that makes this all make sense, that justifies what is happening to him. And so, so I think that is one of those little glimmers of hope that Alex taught us about a few weeks ago, that throughout Job, even as he is asking questions and he's, and he's upset with God, he still realizes that although this suffering has come from God, the only person that he can turn to for hope is that same God. Where else can he go? So even at the end of chapter 31, he is, he is directing all of this to God. Because if there's any hope, that's where it resides. And there is hope. And our hope is even more firmly established. Now, chapter 31 is structured in a really interesting way. This is going to be Job kind of presenting the case that he has walked with integrity, that he is a righteous person, that there, that there is no reason to bring any charge against him. But he kind of does it backwards. He does it by stating the opposite. So you're going to see through chapter 31 these different examples of a hypothetical if-then scenario. So he's going to say, like, if I had done this really bad thing, then I would deserve the punishment that is happening to me. And the implication is, I haven't done any of these bad things, so I do not deserve what's come upon me. Verses 5 through 8 are a good example of how this kind of goes. So look at verse 5. He says, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. Remember thieves came in, they took all of Job's crops and all of his flocks and herds. So that happened to him and he said, well, that would be a right punishment if I had walked in falsehood and deceit. But I haven't. So something's wrong here. Verse 3 states the principle of the whole chapter. He says in verse 3, Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? This is the retribution principle. Job believes it too. Just like his friends believe that bad things happen to bad people, Job believes that too, only he's not a bad person. And calamity has come upon him. So what's going on here? Verses 5 to 8, what we read, he says, I haven't lied, I haven't walked in falsehood. Verses 9 to 12, he says, if I had committed adultery, then I would deserve what's happening to me. But, but I haven't. He actually says, I haven't even entertained unchecked, lustful thoughts in my heart. The whole chapter begins, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? I knew a young man that that was his memory verse to fight the battle of lust and temptation to pornography. That was a wise young man. I have sworn a covenant with my eyes. I am being intentional that I'm not even going to look lest I somehow entertain these wrong thoughts in my heart. Job has been like that. Verses 13 to 15, he says, I haven't treated my servants or my subordinates unfairly because I recognize that, that they're a human being just like I am. Verses 16 to 22, he says, I haven't neglected the poor. 
I've actually taken care of widows and orphans. Verses 24 to 28, I haven't loved money. I haven't worshiped false gods. 29 to 30, I've loved my enemies and I haven't wished harm for them. 31 to 32, I've been hospitable and generous. 33 to 34, I haven't kept my sin unconfessed or walked in the fear of man. Even 38 to 40, I have taken good care of my farmlands because we are supposed to be good stewards of God's creation. So why is this all happening to me? I think it's really important to to say, to be clear about this, that I don't think Job is being self-righteous here. At least not the way that we conceive of it with the New Testament in our minds. I know as Christians, we read chapter 31 and it sounds off to us, like there's little alarms buzzing in our heads and there is something off in it, but, but what the author of Job is, is not trying to say is that Job is self-righteously boasting in his works here. What the author of Job is trying to say is that Job has been wise. He really has been a righteous, good person. Not a perfect person, but one that even confesses his sins and offers sacrifices. He is walking in integrity. This is the stuff that God commended Job for in the prologue. That he is blameless and upright. So the problem here, as far as Job is trying to present it to us, isn't that Job has too high a view of his own righteousness, but that, but that all of the suffering that has come upon him has made him have too low a view of God's righteousness. Look at verses 35 to 37. This is his cry to God, his future hope. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty Answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He said that if God would just give him a good reason, that explains why all of this is happening. Give him that indictment. He'd sign his name on it right there. Give him the record of wrongs that proves to Job that the suffering that he is undergoing is a just punishment. That's what he says. He says, give that to me and I will carry it around proudly. If you can explain to me why all of this makes sense, then I'll take that indictment and I'll origami it into a crown that I wear on my head. I will be glad to have that because then I would know that you are fair and wise and just. But the subtext in what he's saying is that there is no record of wrong that God could present to Job. Not one that would justify what has happened to him as a right punishment. It's hard not to hear a tone of threat in what Job is saying. He clearly calls God his adversary. He says, that if he could, he would approach God like a prince and give an account for all of his steps. So I think you get in your mind a picture of two rival rulers squaring up against each other. And then Job closes his argument. Verse 40, the words of Job are ended. I rest my case. What more can I say? Let God answer me, if he dares. Now, can you believe that this is in the Bible? I mean, really, this is, this is shocking. 
that this is here. It's all the more shocking because, because we know that Job was the man that God called his servant, that God was confident in, and that God really is Job's friend. No matter what Job thinks is going on in God's silence, and we know even by the end of the book that God still loves Job and restores him, gives back to him everything that he lost and then some. But we read these words and Job saying this and we would think the right response from God would be for God to zap him with a lightning bolt for the crazy accusations that he is making. But there is no lightning bolt. God loves Job. There's no lightning bolt, but there is a whirlwind that's coming. God doesn't zap Job but he does humble him. And that's where we're headed, that God finally does speak out of the whirlwind, chapter 38 says, and, and God does bring Job to a point of realizing just how wrong he's been in the things that he has been saying. God confronts Job with a glorious picture of his character and attributes. And Job is brought to a place of humility and better understanding. He fears the Lord. We'll be there in a few weeks, but... But as we just stop here at chapter 31, what are we supposed to do with these chapters as Christians? Job is a complicated book, especially the stuff in the middle as, as Christians, because we have to try and understand how this, what this is saying on its own terms, but then also how it relates to what we know later in the New Testament. So what do we learn here? Well, let me give you five quick thoughts as we conclude. First, I think as we consider chapters 29 to 31, we learn that we need to have better categories for prayers of lament. That's what a lot of these chapters are. They are Job expressing deep sorrow and confusion and even complaints about what is not going well in the world. And I think Job is a model for us in that he never stops praying through the entire book, through all of his suffering, through everything that he has lost again and again and again. He is praying. He is directing his emotions and his questions and his thoughts right to God. And there's a lot about what Job says. There's a lot that Job says, especially in chapter 30, that is very much in line with other prayers of lament that we read in the Old Testament. A great example is Psalm 22. This is a very famous Psalm, King David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Job was praying in chapter 30? Lament is expressing honest, deep, confusion and, and pain to God at what seems like his silence or inactivity. And that's okay. It's okay to feel those deep emotions, and it is okay to tell God what you're feeling. God already knows what you're feeling. And that's part of being in a relationship with him, as we can, we can talk to him, we can, we can cry out to him with that sorrow and with, with that pain. We can pray prayers of lament even if it's really more of a confession, when you are confessing to doubts or feelings that you know shouldn't be there. It would not be 
wise to keep those bottled up, but to take them to God so that he can give us more understanding. And that's the second thing that we learn. We know more than Job does. Just when you're reading Job, you always have to remember that. You know more than Job does. You know more because you read what happened at the beginning. Job wasn't there in the heavenly courtroom when this whole thing started. Job doesn't know why this is happening. Not only do you know why it's happening, but you also know where it's going. You can read the whole book of Job. You don't have to stop at 31 and wait until next week. Go ahead and read on. God gives Job more revelation of himself. God gives Job what he needs to make that turn in lamenting to having a right worship once again. It comes through knowing more about God and more of God's character. So not only do we have the rest of the book of Job, but we have the rest of the Bible that tells us so much more than what Job knows. And so we have to have that. If you are in this place of accusing God of wrongdoing or sulking in your anger and demanding that God explain himself, well, I would say that's probably because you don't know your Bible well enough. Job is a model for us in that we can take our our heartfelt emotions to God in prayer, but he's not a model for us because he doesn't know how the story ends, but you do. So in your lamenting, when you are suffering, it's right to feel that pain and to take it to God. But, but finish Job. Jump ahead to chapter 38 and hear what God says about himself as he reveals his character and, and his wisdom to Job. Or, or you know what? Read all of Psalm 22. It starts with David lamenting, but it ends with him praising because he remembers what God is like and what he has done. Or you know what? Just go to Romans 8 and read about God's good plans for us even when things are hard. Read the rest of the Bible. Apply all of this truth to your suffering because you know more than Job. Number three, not all suffering is punishment. This is Job's big hang-up. Well, Job has some other hang-ups, but this is his biggest hang-up. Job is stuck in this black and white mechanical system of retribution where only bad things happen to bad people. But that's just not true. That's not how it works. And and Job and elsewhere in the Bible, it helps us to understand that not all suffering is because you've done something wrong. Now, to be clear, sometimes it is. Sometimes your sin does have consequences. Or sometimes God will even discipline you in your sin to bring you to the place of repentance. But, But listen, that is for really clear disobedience to God's commands. That's not for vague stuff that somehow you accidentally upset God and you don't realize what you did wrong. No, this is when you are clearly in disobedience and God may discipline you through suffering, but he's trying to bring you to the place of right relationship with him again. But there are lots of other reasons that we might suffer. We live in a fallen world and there are fallen people in it. And there are fallen angelic beings that we can't even see that are doing stuff. And so the point is just you can never know for certain why the suffering has come. But you can know that God is in charge of the suffering. And that God promises that no matter what is happening, he is working through that suffering to do good for you. So don't just conclude because something is is bad is happening. I know it's so easy to say, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe nothing. That's not the point. The point is, what is God teaching you through that suffering? Fourth, 
and I won't say much about this, but, but we should take note of Job's integrity in especially chapter 31. Job really is a wise man. Chapter 31 is a great example of wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs that's teaching you how to master life, how to live like a good person and right relationships in society. And so it would be worth your time to really meditate on all of those different if-then statements in chapter 31 to, to learn what it looks like to be a wise man or woman that is mastering life and navigating uh, this life well. And fifth, we should remember Christ, as we read these verses. As I said, Job, Job has his own stuff that he's working through, and we can kind of just, let's just set that aside right now. But if you're like me, and you read through these chapters about Job's integrity, and all of the things that he's saying, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't lusted, I haven't stolen, I haven't lied, I haven't worshipped false gods. You're probably reading that, and you think, yeah, I probably do deserve punishment because I haven't walked in integrity, not like Job. There are lots of ways that I have failed. I haven't been as righteous as Job. I certainly haven't been as righteous as God would want me to be. And if we jump ahead now to the Apostle Paul's view of righteousness and justification in the book of Romans, what Rebecca read for us in Romans chapter 3, this is, this is true. We believe this. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. So, so where Job thinks that this record of wrongs, this indictment that God would present to him, that would, that would somehow vindicate him over God. And Job's making a different point. But, but whereas Job thinks that this indictment would somehow be a source of comfort for him so that he would wear it proudly on his shoulder or he would put it on his head like a crown, we know that if God held up our record of wrongs and gave it to us, it would be a death sentence because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As the old confession goes, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But Christ who was the only perfectly righteous man because he was God the Son in the flesh, he entered in and he was that arbitrator that we needed, that mediator that we needed between us and God. We said that God, God is where that punishment comes from, but he's also the only one that can give us any source of hope. He is both the just and the justifier. That is what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took our record of wrongs. He took that list of sins that you are guilty of and he put it on his shoulder. Not proudly, but as a cross that he carried down to the street to the place where he was to be executed. He took your record of wrongs and he put it on his head like a crown. But not one of gold. A crown of thorns. He took that record of debt that stood against us and he nailed it to the cross. 
And he paid the punishment. He paid the death penalty that you deserve for your unrighteousness. Colossians 2 says that when he did that, he disarmed our enemy. The prosecuting attorney has nothing against us anymore. Because all of that record of debt that you have your name signed to, it died with Christ on the cross. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Amen? And when he came up out of the grave, your sin stayed there in the ground. And it is there now. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put him forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice, one who died as a substitute to make things right so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So have you believed? Do you have faith in Jesus? Because, friend, there is a punishment that awaits those who have not put their trust in Christ. The wages of sin is death. But believe in him, and you'll be forgiven. That record of debt is transferred to his account, and the punishment is dealt with. And if you have believed then you are in a right relationship with God. You are right with God. God is your friend, no matter what it feels like, no matter what you are going through right now. You are right with God, and his plans for you are only good. You can trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our hope in the face of death. God, if there is anyone in here who has not had their record of wrongs erased through your death on the cross, I pray that you would help them to believe it right now. And Lord, for all of us, no matter what we're going through, please help us to trust that if we have believed in Christ, then we are right, and our hope is secure forever because of our good king who died for us. In his name we pray, amen.